Hello and welcome back to Primer, a podcast about all things Amazon. I'm Alex Press, joined as ever by my producer, Sarah Hurd. So, it's been a while since our last episode. As it turns out, the problem with being the sole host of this show is that when my schedule fills up, we have to put the project on pause. But I'd like to fill you in on what I've been up to while we were on that break. As listeners are aware, I'm a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine, so I've still been writing there. But as you may have noticed, I haven't written much about Amazon lately. And that's because there's been a real uptick in labor militancy in the United States, and I've been doing my best to cover that phenomenon, speaking with workers, especially ones who are on strike, as well as analyzing what this shift means. It's not exactly the subject of Primer, but it's not entirely unrelated. Coming off of over a year of a very poorly handled pandemic in this country, during which many workers not only continued having to go to work, in factories, in warehouses, in supermarkets, in hospitals, but had to work more hours than ever. That's one experience shared among many of the people who are either going on strike in the private sector or quitting their jobs entirely in search of a more sustainable job. Mandatory overtime. That can mean up to 40 hours a week. The pandemic has led them to reevaluate their priorities, and a lot of them are no longer willing to put up with being worked that long. They want time with family. They want time for fun, hobbies. They want the stuff that makes a good life. And if their boss is preventing them from having that, they'll either force him to give them what they want, or they'll quit if they don't have a union especially, and they'll try to find a better deal. This dynamic, of course, is precisely what Amazon workers describe too. The dictatorship of the workplace is not tolerable. Amazon is setting the pace on surveillance and control over workers' experience on the job, and so this is part of the story of Amazon worker organizing, too, especially over the course of the pandemic. So, that's what I've been writing about. Lately, I've been especially focused on IATSE, the union of so-called below-the-line crew members in the film and TV industry. Some 60,000 of them were ready to go on strike starting October 18th as the studios refused to give them the conditions they need to make their jobs livable as they're negotiating a new three-year contract that covers workers nationwide, though many of them are based in Los Angeles. I even wrote a piece about that for the New York Times. But that strike was very narrowly averted when the union reached a tentative agreement with the producers on Saturday night this past weekend. The story isn't over either. Members have yet to receive the full contract, Some of them seem very upset about the highlights that they've read so far. So they'll evaluate and discuss the substance of the tentative agreement, and then they'll vote on whether to ratify it or not. If they fail to ratify it, if they vote it down, we might once again see them threatening to strike or immediately going on strike. It may be a while before that vote happens, so I'll still be writing about it, mostly at Jacobin. Beyond that, I took a nice vacation in Los Angeles which was fortunate timing given that L.A. is the center of much of the IATSE membership um, that is in those negotiations right now. I've also been teaching a writing workshop for organizers, which is a very cool project. All my students are wildly sharp and impressive organizers. So that's all kept me very busy. But I wanted to get back to this show because Amazon continues to swallow the world. And I want to keep offering a resource for understanding some of the many, many facets of the company and effect on all of us. So to that end... Today's episode is about microwork, the world of people who work via websites to complete mini-tasks, such as transcribing interviews, identifying objects and photos, moderating content on various websites, and otherwise training AI to do such tasks. This is a sector that Amazon played a pioneering role in via its Mechanical Turk platform, but this sector has far more players than just Jeff Bezos. To talk about that quite purposely hidden industry, I spoke with Phil Jones, who just published a book with Verso Books titled Work Without the Worker, 
Labor in the Age of Platform Capitalism. Phil is a researcher for the think tank Autonomy in the UK. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Hey, Phil. Welcome to Primer. Thanks so much for coming on to speak to us. So this week, we're talking about your new book, which is out with Verso. It's called Work Without the Worker, Labor in the Age of Platform Capitalism. It's about microwork. So let's start by defining what microwork is. Hey, so yeah, first, uh, thanks for having me, Alex. It's great to be here. So um, microwork is, is really just another word for short data tasks. Um, the tasks are hosted on digital platforms, which act as... Uh, intermediaries between contractors and workers. So the platform will then take a cut from every transaction between those two parties. Um, And the contractors are very often large tech companies such as uh, Google, Facebook, uh, Uber, Microsoft. Uh, And these companies need workers to process data, uh, often to train their artificial intelligence technology. So tasks on the site might include annotating images of urban areas to direct autonomous drones, um, annotating images of faces to train facial recognition technology, um, or maybe uh, training chatbots to kind of recognize, you know, different accents or different emotions in people's voices. I I suppose like Silicon Valley hype tends to sort of depict AI as something entirely unprecedented, like this new wowee technology we've, we've never had anything like in the past. But like the relationship between the technology and workers is really not so different from the relationship between earlier technologies and workers. So, you know, say the, the spinning jenny and the worker, um, the machine does some of the tasks the worker once did, but the worker is still required to watch over the machine um, and sort of correct its functions. Basically, this is similar to what the, the micro worker does. Um, so the majority of those who, who do this work um, are in the, in the global south um, and maybe refugees, um, prisoners, or or people living in um, occupied territories. Conditions are pretty miserable on these sites, generally speaking. One study found that on uh, a few of the platforms, the majority of tasks are paid at less than uh, than 20 cents. That's 20 cents a task. Another study a few years back found that on one platform, the average wage was $2 an hour. So because the tasks are, are so short and poorly paid, um, workers often have to work, you know, super, super fast um, to reach subsistence wages. In fact, actually, what often happens is that workers spend more time hunting for tasks than actually doing paid work. Right. And the book describes some. So you mentioned refugees, prisoners are these are the sort of people that are often doing these tasks. And the book, the first the first substance chapter opens with this scene. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of it because it's extremely disturbing. Um A woman living in Kenya's Dabab, among the world's largest refugee camps, wanders across the vast, dusty site to a central hut lined with computers. Like many others who have been brutally displaced and then warehoused at the margins of our global system, her days are spent toiling away for a new capitalist vanguard thousands of miles away in Silicon Valley. A day's work might include labeling videos, transcribing audio, or showing algorithms how to identify various photos of cats. Amid a drought of real employment, click work represents one of few formal options for the residents of the camp. Though the work is volatile, arduous, and when waged, paid by the piece. And you go on from there. So these are really the most sort of marginalized peoples that are sort of put in a place where this is all they can accept, right? This is the only work that's on offer. Exactly. Yeah. So as, as um, I just sort of after that paragraph, I go on to discuss as well um, 
prisoners in in Finnish prisons um, in Europe um, who, through the company Vanu, were outsourced short data tasks um, on Amazon Mechanical Turk. And basically what the what the platforms get out of this, um, the sort of the large platforms um, that, are, that are contracting labor over these, over these micro work sites um, is effectively a labor force that's not really in the position uh, to uh, first resist bad conditions, um, really to fight for a better wage um, and ultimately um, organize into a, a collective mass that might actually trouble these, these, these platforms Um Hence why the, the name of the book is, is Work Without the Worker. What the platforms kind of get, essentially, um, is all of the work without the troubles associated with an actual workforce. Right. Yeah. And I definitely want to get to sort of the implications for organizing. Um, but you mentioned Amazon Mechanical Turk. Obviously, the show is about Amazon. Um, and that is a website that sort of pioneered this type of work. Can you talk about when that site came live, what was it originally used for? How many people are working on Amazon Mechanical Turk? Everything about that, because I feel like people have heard about it, but they don't really know much. Yeah, sure. So, um, though it's, it's it's the most famous um, or actually infamous microwork site, um, it's actually relatively small. So, one conservative estimate um, from 2019 um, estimated that. They had had about a quarter of a million people um, who had performed a task on the platform. Um, so that that could be just one task. That you know that that doesn't include. That's not um, the number of workers that are regularly using the platform as a sort of main source of income. And that compared to say Clickworker, another platform, um, it is really quite small. I mean, Clickworker has a user base of over two million. Um, another platform, Appen, has as a user base of one million. So Mechanical Turk isn't really that isn't really that big. Partly for the fact that it, it you know it, it mostly contracts workers in the US and India um, and and not a great deal many other countries. Right. It kind of started as a service um, only available to programmers internal to Amazon. Um, this was back in I think two thousand and one, um, just just after the kind of the. Uh, uh, the Halison days of the dot-com boom when uh, the internet was still ostensibly great and we didn't have wide-scale data mining yet. Um, uh, Amazon developed the site uh, to solve basically a, a, a problem, on um, problem, an internal problem that it had. Basically, its algorithms were failing to recognize duplicate product listings. But it soon realized sort of in the mid-2000s, once the uh, sort of the, the online economy took off in a bigger way, sort of more of the big tech platforms that we now recognize were kind of emerging, it realized that there was a, a, a genuine sort of need, a growing demand for cheap digital labor. So in 2005, um, the site went public um, and kind of became a prototype for these uh, these other platforms like Appen, Playment, Clickworker, etc. The name of the platform is actually quite useful in helping us understand the initial logic behind it. Uh, the original Mechanical Turk was this kind of crazy, uh, outlandish device created in the 18th century um, by a Hungarian inventor uh, designed to kind of resemble a chess-playing automaton. It was no such thing. Um, Sort of tucked away inside the device was um, uh, a human chess master. But the point basically was to make it look as though a machine was doing something that humans were doing. Um, uh, And kind of Amazon's platform is is a sort of almost like a uh, like a cheeky, somewhat annoying nod to this history. So Jeff Bezos describes the workers as um, 
artificial, artificial intelligence. The point of the site is that workers appear to contractors as machines. This is kind of partly a marketing ploy, um, sort of another part of big tech's uh, tendency to want everything to look, um, well, uh, yeah, basically everything to look kind of high tech, even stuff that is, you know, patently not. Um, but it's also another interesting theory that I've that I've uh, um, read in a couple of articles is that it's kind of also to protect the reputation of the contractor companies who use the service. Uh, so effectively, they can continue to pretend to be tech businesses and can sort of pretend to be engineers as opposed to um, entrepreneurs. The logic being, I guess, if you sort of outsource the labor and hide it on so-called uh, quote-unquote tech sites, no one will know that your artificial intelligence is actually human intelligence. Right, which is amazing that a lot of people really do just believe. I mean, I certainly have believed this in the past that when a, a platform or a website or a company says it has AI, I'm just like, oh, I don't really understand how that works. So I guess, you know, that's true. But really often we're talking about these incredibly low paid workers who are completely removed from any linkage to that end site. So you can't find them even if you go looking. Right, exactly. And that's, you know, that's, Kind of the main, almost the, the sort of the main function of these sites I just sort of pointed out is to, is to make the, the, you know, is to hide the workers almost entirely so that, um, you know, basically, um, firstly, they can sort of uphold their reputation, as I said, but also it makes it really difficult for the workers to kind of band together as well. Um, it also means that the workers often have um, no idea um, what kind of work they're involved with because they're so sort of far down this supply chain, they can't see the end product that they're working towards. Um, so basically it kind of, it, it kind of creates this, this, this context of opacity um, where workers are, you know, disempowered to a degree, I would argue, um, sort of unseen so far um, kind of in capitalist history, really. Right. I mean, there's very disturbing depictions throughout the book. One that's coming to mind is like a favela resident in Brazil who is logging onto this site to do work to program a drone that then is monitoring his own favela, right? So it's they have no idea that this is actually the sort of thing they're doing. They're building the tools that actually are directly kind of oppressing them and people like them around the world. Um, which is just a very evocative um, and upsetting way of thinking about what the future of the economy looks like. Um, I want to ask you, part of the argument that the book makes is that this is sort of the way things are going moving forward. And that's rooted in an argument about employment cycles since the 70s, profit, the capitalist sort of historical cycle, right? Um, and so I, if you can boil that down, I understand that entire books are written about this argument, but can you explain to people sort of how we get here that this is the, a growing sector of employment and also your use of the term in the book um, sub-employment as part of this argument. Okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah, exactly. You're right to point out, I mean, this is a this has been a sort of a, a common argument made across a, a number of books and it, it sort of starts with the work of the historian Robert Brenner. So the basic argument is sort of back in the 1970s, um, US manufacturing entered and, and now remains in a kind of recalcitrant, period of, of stagnation. Um, and this then was sort of shifted onto Japan and Europe. This was a crisis of, of overcapacity. Effectively, industries were producing sort of too much to be consumed. So a lot of companies started to look for cheap ways to, to produce their goods. Um, sort of competition, as is always the case under capitalism, necessitated so. Um, so they started to outsource their labour to cheaper regions. This meant lots of workers, once in domestic manufacturing in countries like the US and UK, 
um, were transferred into the service sector, where job growth and, and productivity gains are notoriously much slower than in manufacturing. So this is, this led to a, a crisis of, of labor demand, basically, uh, something that, that Aaron Beninav uh, describes very well in his recent book, um, Automation and the Future of Work. Um, and, and at the same time as this, this, this sort of, um, we find this lack of labor demand, uh, larger numbers of, of communist and colonized countries were opening up their labor markets. So proletarianization was taking place in those countries, um, which expanded the sort of the, the global supply of labor. The upshot of this um, counter to, to sort of other theories um, has not been apocalyptic levels of unemployment, um, you know, as is repeatedly predicted in the, the literature on automation, uh, at least in the global north, that's to say. Um, but it's actually been a sort of continual downward pressure on wages, worse conditions, insufficient hours, widespread sort of market volatility, um, meaning that a lot of the jobs created in recent years have, have, uh, have basically barely differed from um, the most sort of abject forms of, of, of joblessness. In the book, as you say, I, des- I describe this as subemployment, uh, the prefix sort of capturing the, the below par conditions, wages, uh, the strange sense of hovering in a kind of um, sort of nether region between employment and unemployment. And then I guess also the sort of the ugly forms of uh, domination this this world of, of, of work often entails. Microwork is a great example of this. And then simultaneously what you're finding in the global south through processes of structural adjustment and, and, and deregulation um, largely brought in by policies by institutions like the World Bank and IMF um, um, is a growth then of the informal sectors in these countries. So that that basically becomes a, a space to absorb large numbers of workers that have been pushed out of sort of um, public services and also out of agricultural work and, and such. So basically you end up with this this sort of global pool of, of, of surplus workers, which puts, puts continual pressure on um, uh, sort of wages, conditions, and um, uh, and also the possibility of kind of organizing as well. Right. So the sub and subemployment also, you know, generally is referring to subpar conditions across the board. And one of the ones that you really lay out in the book is about wage theft, um, that this is taking place sort of at every stage of working through these micro work sites. And I think it's useful to go into that because, you know, people start to understand this with Uber drivers, for example, that they're not making money when they're waiting for a new ride. And so it's very easy to kind of relate to like, okay, that is in fact different than an old style job where you're actually just on the clock and you're getting paid through that process. And you're describing this happening almost at many more stages of the process with these workers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, wage theft is, I mean, it's completely rife on platforms like Mechanical Turk and Click Worker. Um, one survey showed that uh, 30% of workers on microwork sites experience wage theft regularly. Um, on Clickworker, a whopping 15% of all tasks apparently go unpaid. And this happens, you know, partly because workers are given no recourse to action on the platform. So if, if a task is deemed as, as, um, as badly performed and is rejected by a contractor... Workers can't workers can't really do anything about that. Contractors can review workers, um, but but not the other way around. So contractors can't be reviewed by workers. So if contractors don't pay, there's no way for a um, there's no way for a worker to flag that up and uh, show basically sort of let other workers know um, that there is a, a dubious contractor operating on the platform at that moment. 
Um, so this allows wage theft to flourish uh, and take a kind of bunch of forms. Um, one common way on micro platforms is that lots of workers will be given the same task. So it might be sort of 30 or 40 workers are given the same task. Um, then the workers um, who have answered in the majority will be paid, while the minority will be assumed to have completed the task badly, have performed it wrongly, um, and will be denied payment. So that could be, you know, 10 workers out of 40 there that, that are denied payment. Right. And that's like, you know, there's a photo of a cat and there's a photo that's not of a cat. And if the majority say, actually, there are two cats, everyone who said there's just one, you know, they're going without payment. Their work is being rejected. Exactly. Yeah. And it's the strange thing about this is it could mean that in certain situations, you know, the majority is wrong and they're getting paid and the minority are, are getting it right and they're not getting paid. So it's not even really a particularly precise way of, um, of, of rewarding sort of good performance. Right. I mean, another another way we see workers receiving less than promised, which is, you know, is effectively wage theft, is that requesters can also say that a task will take 15 minutes when in fact it takes a lot longer. So it could take, say, 40 minutes. So on Mechanical Turk, for instance, um, time restrictions are only indicators of how long a task should take. So the worker will see the see the task advertised on the platform and think, great, a dollar a dollar for fifteen minutes work. But because these time restrictions are defined by requesters and they're eager to cut costs, um, a task might be marketed um, for one dollar for fifteen minutes, but actually take closer to thirty to complete. So the worker might not be aware of this until they're like 15 minutes into completing the task. Um, and if you back out at that stage, then you lose payment. Right. I mean, this is a nightmare because everyone knows that bosses often are understating how much work, you know, this is a common complaint across industries, across payment or salary, that your boss is always saying something should take 10 minutes and it's taking 30 minutes instead. So I would imagine this is happening constantly for them. I mean, it must it must be. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much it's being it's being underreported on these sites. Um but yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's it is a, it is according to the sort of the reports that that have been written, even by relatively sort of conservative institutions, by the the International Labour Organization, the ILO. Um, it, it seems that this stuff is just going on continually. I mean, the the fact that that wages um, on these sites are called rewards and tokens basically tells you all you need to know. I mean, I, I argue in the book that. Effectively, what Microwork sort of does is move us away from from wage to wager. Effectively, sort of the 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 wage becomes kind of discretionary as opposed to contractual. It's something that the you know um, you, as a worker you don't have any certainty you're going to receive um, after you've performed the task. Right, which is nuts because I mean when we think about some jobs that are go, that go unpaid now, I sort of think the first thing that comes to mind is like a high prestige internship, right? Uh, that maybe you take the New Yorker magazine internship, though I'm sure those are now paid because in the future it's going to pay off. But we're talking about things that pay one dollar for 15 minutes of work that are completely there's no payoff in the future. This is your actual source of income. Yeah. And it means, you know, it, it, it means that for lots of people who um, who, you know, go on these sites who don't rely on it as a primary source of income, they probably experience this and and then they leave. They think, this is not worth my time. I can't make any additional money with this. Uh, but for lots of people, this is their primary source of income. There's lots of workers in India. There's lots of workers in Venezuela who are totally dependent on this, um, you know, as basically as a full-time job. Um, and if day in, day out, they are um, continually not being given wages that they've been promised, then this means, you know, aside from the fact that they can't uh, plan day-to-day their, their sort of income, 
it also means just a significant amount of stress. It means a continual sort of, um, you know, level of uncertainty around where you're going to be at the end of the week. Um, there's not really been any studies yet into uh, the sort of the, the 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 mental health of microworkers, but that that would be really that would be really interesting to see. Right. And so you've mentioned Clickworker and Appen in addition to Amazon Mechanical Turk. And I just want to make sure we touch on the major players. And also you divide the sites into two types. There's curated crowd and crude crowd. So can you just lay out sort of a bigger picture? Like here are the major players. Here's where they're operating. um, And here's what the types of workforces are. Yeah. So um, crude crowd sites, um, as the name suggests, basically sort of let any worker or contractor use the platform. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a crude sort of form of employment in the sense that um, any kind of computational task can be uploaded uh, so long as it harmonizes with the, with the site's functions. These sites consistently pay below subsistence wages, uh, according to the standards of pretty much every country across the globe. Um, and, yeah, they're, they're the ones that are often associated with the highest levels of, of wage theft. And those included within this category um, are Amazon Mechanical Turk and Clickworker, the two the two most sort of notorious uh, microwork platforms, the ones that have appeared um, in sort of endless scare stories in the New York Times and Guardian, etc. Then there's this, this, this um, other layer of microwork platforms, which have been less... Um, basically have just been less coverage and received less coverage in the press, uh, partly because they're kind of uh, um, the, the sort of the miserable conditions of labor are slightly less spectacular on these platforms, but also because they've been very good at uh, sort of hiding behind sort of multiple sort of uh, software architectures of platforms like Appen, Lionsbridge and Playment, which cater almost exclusively uh, to the machine learning needs of large corporations. So they might have workers processing data for, you know, like warehouse robotics, chatbots, etc. Um, they might sort of they tend to also uh, host tasks that involve significant skill, which means that you'll do uh, a worker might have to perform an unpaid test before completing a task to demonstrate that they are um, capable of completing the task uh, to a sufficiently high standard. And I was surprised that one of the examples you gave of a skill was translation, um, which, you know, is actually, you know, I, at least the way most people think of it is a pretty esteemed, difficult skill to get a handle on. And yet you're saying these tasks are broken down and then we're having people translate things for very small amounts of money. Yeah. So this is one of the things that happens on these these sites. And I think will um, will happen sort of increasingly over the next few years is that sort of once white collar professions or, or or jobs that we would consider to be kind of white collar professions um, are being sort of proletarianized on these on these sites. So translator is a good example. What you'll find on these sites is lots of very short translation tasks, which are being used largely to train, um, you know, sort of Google's translation machines, etc. So what the basically what the, the contractors get out of this is instead of getting uh, one full time translator with um, you know, a, a minimum wage of workers' rights and access to a union is they get uh, 40 workers completing um, all of those translation tasks um, and none of them will have any of, the, you know, none of them will have access to to, to, to sort of wage minimums or, or unions or anything. Um, so it creates this kind of, it creates a form of flexibility for capital um, that, that, that neoliberals before now could only sort of dream of in the sense that you can sort of, 
you can hire and fire a workforce of translators in the space of an hour, effectively. You don't have to have, you know, a, a long-term employee who um, carries the potential of sort of, um, of, 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 of causing trouble somewhere later down the line. Right. And so the last main thing I want us to talk about was the effect this has on organizing. So you just laid out that, you know, translators, for example, who in many places have unions or standing, right? They're sort of um, very valued employees who are white collar and are paid well. All of a sudden, we've just completely dismantled that and we've created this low wage, um, easily fired, anonymized um, sort of uh, mediator that stops that. So what is the effect of this in general, these sites for organizing, both undercutting existing organizations and also then the possibilities for these workers organizing going forward? So th- th- there has been very little worker organization on these platforms so far, um, except for on Mechanical Turk. So workers haven't unionized, mostly because they're they're remote from each other. Um, they can't readily communicate with each other and they're kind of they're often oppressed by platforms that are designed to kind of disempower them. And also, it's very difficult for unions to sort of to to, to see this workforce. You know, they are um, essentially invisible. They're not they're not easy workers to contact. They're not. It's not like you can um, send somebody into a, a microwork platform and, and organize workers. Nonetheless, uh, there is some evidence actually recently that that mechanical Turk workers um, have set up this this forum um, to push the company into providing better conditions, specifically around issues of of wage theft and rejected tasks. This is actually something I only heard about yesterday, um, uh, speaking to a, a colleague yesterday. So I'm pretty excited to kind of hear more about this in the coming coming weeks. Um, mechanical Turk workers in the past. Um, have taken action against dodgy contractors. So I mentioned earlier um, the the one-sided review systems um, on Mechanical Turk, which only allow contractors to, to rate workers. Well, workers have actually pushed back against this one-sided system um, and have created a tool called uh, Turk Opticon, uh, a browser plugin um, that, that overlays the screens of workers who download it and it allows them to write reviews about contractors um, and publish them in real time so other workers can see if there is a dodgy contractor on the platform. And so, wait, what what was the thing you heard about yesterday? So this is, it's quite vague. This is basically just um, a forum which has been set up as a way for workers to sort of um, to meet each other firstly, um, and then to kind of organize um, around specific issues. So that might be, you know, wage theft and, and rejected tasks, I said a minute ago. The problem is, is in the past is things like this have happened before on Mechanical Turk, um, and they've got shut down very quickly by the platform. I mean, they've be, partly because they've relied on the platform itself um, to authenticate workers for the forum. So to figure out whether um, the workers are who they say they are, they've had to use tasks on Mechanical Turk uh, to prove that the worker works on Mechanical Turk because only a worker who's on Mechanical Turk um, would be able to complete a task on there. So is this, it, it, it's, this, it's this difficult situation where... Um, um, they're, they're dependent on sort of software architectures that have been created um, with the express purpose of preventing them from organizing. It's a really tricky situation. I mean, in the book, I, I kind of, I, I don't offer sort of too many organizational strategies because I feel like it, it should be left to the workers that are on these platforms to um, to figure this out. It feels kind of somewhat condescending for me to sort of come up with these ideas, but I do work through a couple of sort of potential scenarios um, 
that 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 might that might sort of be uh, potential sort of potential strategies in the future. So, for instance, you know, data sabotage might be one way that workers on these platforms can um, potentially um, find ways of, of of pushing for better conditions and better wages. So, if enough workers on these platforms together performed the tasks badly uh, and basically sort of clogged up the flows of data that these platforms rely on, um, then you know you could see all kinds of chaos on the internet. You know, if Facebook moderators decided to stop. You know, lots of them enough took, went on general strike and dis, and, and um, decided basically they were going to withdraw their labour for a, for a, a couple of weeks. Facebook would probably have to shut down the platform because it would be you know swamped with pornographic and trauma, traumatic imagery. Um, similarly, with Google, you know, Google um, raters who uh, find work through platforms like Appen and Lionsbridge, if those workers decided to withdraw their withdraw their labour, you know, Google's um, searches would be no longer personalized in ways that are particularly useful. So again, it, it, you know, it would be pretty catastrophic for, um, for these companies. Right. Um, and just to underline the point, I mean, so the, at least for me in writing about labor, you know, one thing I've done a lot is talk about how to organize rideshare workers. Right. And to me, that has always been sort of like the latest hard thing to do because they, basically only can communicate through the platform, through the app, which obviously does not let them talk to each other. They're just tied to the algorithm and the company. Um, And they're very hard to track down, right? So a traditional union has a lot of trouble trying to find any of these workers. Sometimes in cities, there's places they congregate, though, and that's where they tend to go. So organizing happens in like parking lots and parking garages or near the airport, right? Places that people kind of gather while they're waiting in between rides for a new customer. This doesn't even offer that, right? So this is a dispersed globally workforce that is truly only tied together through a website, um, through the employer, and cannot find each other's contact information almost at all otherwise. Um, So I just want to emphasize sort of the point your book makes, which is that if this is a growing workforce, this is a growing problem for the organized labor movement as well, right? The the way you put workers without a workforce and work without the worker. Absolutely. And I think think maybe one of the the strategies that the you know, that could be uh, fruitful here is um, something like the the worker center model um, that that seems to be a thing in the US, but not so much in the UK, um, where these centers are, uh, are basically opened up for day laborers uh, so that they can get some uh, support, can get some food, um, have a bit of a break and meet other workers. And as far as I can tell from reading about them, have been used to uh, to organize as well against um, sort of dodgy contractors. So I think something like that could be really useful for microwork, particularly in um, sort of cities across the world where there's a high concentration of workers. And that's something that, that researchers could get data on um, and, and kind of figure out where it might be um, sort of most effective to kind of start these worker centers, basically. Right. And the last thing I want to talk to you about is the role that data is playing in this process. So you write in the book that actually, in fact, it's not necessarily that these platforms are particularly profitable for anyone involved, but the profits are coming from the training of data, right? The addition of data, every task that's completed over Amazon Mechanical Turk, that data around the task and its completion, you know, stays with Amazon. And that's very useful for the company. So can you just explain a little bit about that? Because I think, again, the sort of general understanding is that, okay, workers are useful because they're producing profits, right? But you're saying they're producing data. Yeah. And, and, and ultimately that, that leads to pro- leads to profits for these companies. But actually, as you say, 
uh, the thing that they market themselves as doing, which is, you know, providing a platform for contractors and workers to meet and then taking a cut from those those um, transactions uh, to make a profit. That doesn't really seem to be what what's going on here. So if you look through the terms and conditions of some microwork sites, um, that the, they would suggest that the data about how the tasks are done is potentially more important than the products of the tasks themselves. That's to say, um, the information about the labour is more important than the product of the labour. So this suggests that workers are directly showing machines how to do their jobs, basically. The microworkers' real role here is to, well, it, you know, it could be to sort of directly automate their job away, um, uh, you know, and indeed the job, the jobs of others. So it's kind of, you know, if you think about the, the explicit aim of the work, um, it is, you know, to show an algorithm how to sort of show a, uh, you know, show an algorithm how to drive a car or to show a drone how to sort of um, surveil a, a, a sort of urban area or something. So that's quite explicit. I mean, it's quite explicit there that the microworker's job is to automate the jobs of other people. But they're also showing the algorithm how to do the very task that they are currently undertaking. And I'd, I'd say this isn't actually that speculative. I've spoken to some people since writing the book who say that this requires some degree of speculation. But actually, companies like Google and Facebook have been pretty explicit about their desire to, to automate content moderation tasks. Um, Amazon Mechanical Turk is also pretty explicit about this. If you sort of if you take the time to read the terms and conditions on the website, they effectively say that um, that any task completed on the platform. Um, the data from that task can be used by Amazon for its own machine learning purposes. Now, it would, it would entirely make sense that the real reason why Amazon took the, the Mechanical Turk um, platform public rather than keep it as an internal service um, was not really to take a cut from transactions between workers and contractors, which, as I just pointed out, is not even really that profitable, um, but but is to gain sort of wider access to a range of once unavailable data. Um as I mentioned earlier, the, the sort of the key point of many of these tasks is to train artificial intelligence. So from Amazon's perspective, there's always the possibility that while hovering over the transactions that take place on Mechanical Turk, um, they might gain access to some uh, um, data for, you know, uh, something that might be useful for kind of their web services ecology. Right. Well, Phil, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this. It's a world that is not particularly easy to access. Um, so just thanks so much for taking the time out. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. This has been Primer. I hope you enjoyed the show, and thanks for listening. Thanks as ever to my producer, Sarah Hurd, to Jacobin Magazine, and to Nate Roos for the music. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.